season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Back in September 2019, President Cyril Ramaphosa announced a six-month emergency action response plan aimed at decisively tackling the problem of violence against women in South Africa. A week ago, more than 18 months later, the Commission for Gender Equality released its assessment of this program. And it found that only just over 20% of the targets set by government had been met, fewer than a quarter. This is bureaucratic language, but in real terms, we all know what this means that in South Africa, women continue to be raped, beaten, and murdered at a rate normally found only in war zones. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. In our third season, we've been looking for interesting new solutions to some of South Africa's biggest problems. And among the very biggest is the country's ongoing epidemic, of gender-based violence. Like many of the issues we've been dealing with this season, it's pretty much agreed on by experts that gender-based violence can only be decisively uprooted in the long term by addressing a whole constellation of other social problems, childhood development, poverty, unemployment, inequality, and on and on. But South Africa's women don't have the long term to count on. They need to be safe now, so we've been exploring strategies employed internationally to protect women and children and prevent harm. In this episode, we're talking to a Cape Flats activist who used the sale of Kusisters during lockdown as a pretense to offer battered women shelter. And we're speaking to a British academic who believes her work with churches can provide a model for other countries with strong religious institutions. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis. And in the week that the woman, Sarah Everard, uh, was abducted and we suppose killed because remains have been found in a woodland in Kent, I would argue that at the next opportunity for any bill that's appropriate, I might actually put in an amendment to create a curfew for men on the streets after 6pm, which I feel would make women a lot safer, and discrimination of all kinds would be lessened. That woman you just heard was Baroness Jenny Jones, a politician from the UK's Green Party. She was speaking in the British Parliament following a particularly horrible crime the recent abduction and murder of a young woman in London, which was later found to be carried out by a British policeman. The suggestion that Jenny Jones made in Parliament, that perhaps there should be a nighttime curfew for men, caused an absolute outcry. Other politicians used it as evidence of how the left has lost its mind. People on Twitter said it was a sign of the growing and unacceptable prejudice against men. And Jenny Jones reportedly received a deluge of misogynistic hate mail. But 
As she pointed out afterwards, her suggestion, which was not entirely serious, it was intended more as a thought experiment, was made in the context of women in London being advised by police to not go out alone. In other words, the authorities' proposed solution to the problem of women being murdered was effectively to apply a nighttime curfew to women, which few people seemed to have a problem with. But when the tables were turned, total hysteria followed. It happens fairly often that women's movements, rather than men's, are limited in the name of preventing violence against women. But what happens when both men and women are unable to move around freely? Well, we know the answer to this now, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic and its associated lockdown. In our first episode of this season, policing expert Gareth Newham told us that the South African lockdown and the ban on alcohol sales caused certain types of crime to plummet, predominantly those associated with interpersonal violence between young men, like assault and murder. But what didn't drop, what instead seems to have risen exponentially, was domestic violence. More than 120,000 people rang the national helpline for abused women and children within the first three weeks of lockdown, double the usual volume of calls. Vodacom's support call centers saw a 65% increase in calls from women and children confined in their homes seeking urgent help after lockdown began. Here's the weird thing though. The number of domestic violence cases reported to the South African police between March and April 2020, the first two months of hard lockdown, dropped by 69.4%. So which is true? As per the police stats, did South Africa become one of the only countries on earth to experience a decline in gender-based violence during lockdown? Highly unlikely. Instead, what the reduction in reporting to police suggests is that most survivors simply were unable to report violence to police because they were effectively trapped in their homes with abusers. But the upswing in the number of calls to gender helplines at least suggests that some people in this situation were able to make phone calls. Others were too scared even to do that. Enter Caroline Peters. I'm a gender activist, human rights activist, community activist. (laughs) I've been an activist my whole life, Rebecca. But my focus is on women and children and community, and especially on the Cape Flats. When the lockdown was implemented, Caroline immediately knew it would spell bad news for women and children in dangerous domestic situations on the Cape Flats. You must remember gangsters who's normally out on the street were also locked in. So women were locked in with their abusers. They were locked in with those toxic males. And, and um, of course, that escalated the violence. There was no drugs. There was no alcohol. There was no cigarettes. And that all exacerbated um, the, the pressure that women felt in homes. Less than a week into lockdown, Caroline heard from a friend about something interesting that was happening in London during that city's lockdown. She heard that a system of code words had been devised that would allow women in need to ask for help in a covert manner that would not attract the suspicion of their abusers. So Caroline decided to come up with her own system of code that would enable Cape Flats women to seek help by citing the name of a local delicacy. So we developed the Kusista code. 
So if you're in need of any support, you will WhatsApp the number for Kusistas. And so on the first time when you say to me, do you sell Kusistas? I say yes, but I would then know that you are in need of help. And I say, yes, I can deliver them to you. And that way I have your address. Okay. But when your life is in danger, you ask me for the price. Price is the police. I need to get the police. Caroline's aim was initially to get word out about the code to those who needed it via word of mouth. But to help spread the message, she recorded a video which became a victim of its own popularity. Caroline's plan may have arisen in response to the very unique circumstances of hard lockdown, but she has extended the system beyond that particular situation. We know when women are at their most vulnerable, the best thing a woman should have is a practical safety plan. Police are not around 24-7 and so are we. This would definitely be something that that can go on forever, you know, and, and not in the context. I mean, it was established during the context of COVID because of where we were, were at. But it's something that is still being used, something that can still be used. And always, you know, um, because we know women's phones get checked. So there, there's a practical safety plan that, that can go with our, our normal safety plan that we developed with women who, who are vulnerable. Caroline's project is an example of a smart intervention designed not to tackle the roots of gender-based violence, but simply to try to give support to women who are in danger in their own homes. In South Africa, we know that the home is just one potential site of violence against women. Others include the post office, political parties, and even churches. When we're back, we talk to a British academic who believes churches could be doing a lot more to help tackle domestic violence. Change is everywhere. Sometimes it's good, sometimes confusing, or so extraordinary that it challenges everyone and everything. But whatever change comes next, 91 will strive to do everything possible to make a positive change for your investments and for the world we live in. 91, investing for a world of change. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Have any questions or comments about the latest episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger? Why not post them on the comments section of Apple Podcasts and we'll try and look into them for future episodes. You can also rate and review us Our podcast is only possible because of your engagement. And we want to know what you think. My name is Dr. Ava Kanyaretsi, and I am a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of East London, and I'm also the course leader for the clinical and community psychology course. Dr. Ava Kanyaretsi carries out research on violence and abuse, particularly with women of African and Caribbean heritage in the UK. 
that research kind of led on to the project that I'm doing now, which is trying to empower churches, black majority churches, specifically in the UK at the moment, but we envisage that this has a far wider reach. And black majority churches are churches of any denomination where the majority of the congregation are of African or Caribbean heritage. And it's a kind of terminology that's used within the UK and also within the United States. Eva is one of the directors of the Black Church Domestic Abuse Forum, which she has been working with from its inception about five years ago. It arose out of Ava's experience researching violence, where she found that the women she was speaking to would almost inevitably mention the church as a space where they felt safe, where they could cry without judgment, where they met other survivors of violence or abuse and experienced a kind of fellowship. Ava became increasingly interested in these spaces and what they might be able to offer if they were sites where women already felt secure. She teamed up with a number of other academics, theologians, social workers and other professionals to think through what churches could do to more actively support domestic abuse survivors. What they proposed was not just that churches could provide tangible resources or refuge to those fleeing violence. It was also that churches could use religious texts to try to preempt violence. Ways in which churches can respond is to speak about violence and abuse in sermons, to draw attention to those particular scriptures um, within their theology that they can, you know, elucidate for their, their congregation in relation to violence and abuse. Ava has assisted the Black Church Domestic Abuse Forum to produce a toolkit for church teams, which includes Bible stories, verses from scriptures, and case studies which are relevant to issues of gender-based violence. And they give this toolkit to the teams when they undergo training. So there are two trainers. Both are church leaders, a man and a woman, Reverend Shafania, Reverend Bacchus. Um, and what they do, they get the attendees to read the toolkit in advance, there's some evaluation questions before and after the training, and they just get them to talk through all these different scenarios, to talk through Bible stories where there's rape, where there's abuse, and get church leaders to discuss that and to consider how they would respond if, if this was their scenario. So it's, it's almost like using theology as well as lived experience to educate church leaders about domestic abuse. And then after the training, we do some follow-up work with, with churches to try and get them to establish a response to domestic abuse, sort of a committee, if you like. These committees, Ava says, might not necessarily be led by the pastor, but could include trusted congregation members who people can speak to in total confidence and then be referred to the necessary services for more support. Traditionally, more conservative churches have been wary about being seen to intervene in household disputes, which is something that can permit domestic violence to flourish. But Ava says she's encouraged by the response to their project thus far. I think it's a work in progress and you have to go where there's traction, you have to go with church leaders who are amenable to this work. And we've been pleasantly surprised, actually. Uh, we thought we were going to get a lot of backlash 
when we launched uh, the project or when we started piloting the training. So we even had a pre-pilot for the training and found that, that there are quite a few church leaders who are they're fully aware of this, not just from a kind of theological perspective, but from a, a real lived experience of trying to help people and trying to support people who've come to them with these really complex issues. A lot of what we've been experiencing is just a real kind of enthusiasm. So what we've had, instead of that backlash, I, I guess what could be considered to be maybe a little bit surprising is churches who think that this isn't an issue in their church. And so that's a very common response for a lot of faith communities. Oh no, that's not an issue here. It's an issue in secular societies. There isn't any domestic abuse within our church community or within our faith community because they just don't know. So in terms of backlash, not really any uh, noticeable, but maybe um, churches who we've approached, who've said, no, 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 this, this is not a current issue in our church at, at this particular moment in time. Ava says she hopes that the resources being developed by the Black Church Domestic Abuse Forum in the UK could be used in countries like South Africa. But South Africa has some challenges in this regard, not least that we have seen numerous incidents in the past few years of high-profile church leaders themselves being accused of and prosecuted for crimes involving gender-based violence. Pastor Timothy Omatoso, for one, Shepard Bushiri, for another. Ava is well aware that this is an issue, one that also provides a strong argument for placing more women in church leadership positions. There's studies showing that churches can, you know, be, um, they can conceal abusers, especially when they're church leaders, um, and that needs to change. But also in some Pentecostal churches, for example, women are in more leadership positions, but the ultimate decision making tends to be kind of male led and tends to be quite patriarchal. But it really is about, you know, the kind of pushing back and the care and the response and the public health response. Ultimately, Ava says, there are questions we should all be asking when, for instance, a woman is murdered by her intimate partner. Oftentimes when there is domestic abuse homicide, for example, and they, they might have a domestic abuse homicide review, oftentimes they would find that the victims had attended a church, a mosque. But what did that church do? How did they respond? So I think they have a responsibility as public service organisations to support and to be effective in this particular arena. What did the church do? What did police do? What did the justice system do? What did the government do? For every woman beaten, raped or murdered in South Africa, there's a system failure. And what we've been discussing in this episode are mainly ways to help women after that system fails, after the violence has been perpetrated. But in an ideal world, we wouldn't need these emergency measures after the fact. That ideal world, that is the country we have to keep striving for. Thank you for listening to Don't Shoot the Messenger. You've just heard the final episode of season three of our podcast, our How to Fix It season. Enormous thanks to our sponsor for this season, 91. We're taking a short production break now to prepare some great new episodes for your listening pleasure. 
To keep you sated in the interim, we have two other seasons in our back catalogue for you to listen to under Don't Shoot the Messenger on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever podcast app you prefer. You can also find all our past episodes on the Daily Maverick website, that's dailymaverick.com, under the podcast tab. Thank you again for your listening support. It really does mean the world to us. We look forward to being back with you for season four of Don't Shoot the Messenger. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohamed Dauji and written by Rebecca Davis. Editing by Tevya Turok-Shapiro, sound mix by Bernard Kotze, and additional support from Catherine Kotze. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.